Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Relentless Dairy on Podbean.com. Welcome to the land of bourbon and bad decisions. This is Relentless Daring, but not live on Podbean.com or the Podbean app. So, with all the crazy big tech brouhaha, one of the Big things that's been thrown about in political banter is Section 230. <gasps> all these, all these social media platforms, they should be treated like the public square. Uh, they're a private business. They can run the way they want to run. And all of this has been going on in, even more so with Donald Trump and the election and trying to attach, you know, Section 230 repeal to the Defense Authorization Act. And, oh, it's just been a mess. And I realized that I really don't know a whole hell of a lot about Section 230. So I decided that I would find an expert and I would talk to them and learn a thing or two. So, I went stalking through the wilds of dirty, filthy Twitter, and I found, found me an expert by the name of Jess Myers. And honestly, Jess was an absolute pleasure to talk to. I found out that there's a lot of stuff about Section 230 that I thought I knew. <laughs> I really didn't know Jack Squad about. So, Jess, she straightened me out in a way that was completely just sweet and gracious and non-judgmental, which I, I know, finding a keyboard expert on Twitter that's not judgmental and talks down to you, Number one, that was an absolute blast because, you know, when she first started talking to me on Twitter through an exchange where we were third parties and just kind of stumbled across each other, um, she laid it out in a very cognizant way. That's just like, huh, I may have been wrong. And that led to a DM where it's like, hey, you know, we're. You know, thank you for being very gracious with that. It's so refreshing to find someone just didn't call you an idiot. And so after some back and forth, I invite her on the show and a little bit about Jess. Jess is a third year law student at Santa Clara University School of Law, where she studies where she studies Internet law and policy. During law school, Jess was a legal intern for Twitter 
and Tech Freedom, a technology policy think tank based in Washington, D.C. Currently, Jess is a research associate for the UCLA Institute for Technology Law and Policy, where she speaks and writes about intermediary liability law. Her scholarship primarily covers Section 230 and content moderation. As of recent, Jess is also a full-time legal policy specialist at Google. All opinions shared are her own and do not represent her previous or current employers, and you can follow her on Twitter at Jess underscore Myers, M-I-E-R-S. So, like I said, Jess was an absolute blast to talk to, and she really made some great points that I hadn't considered before, and just an absolute blast, and if there's any other uh, situations in the future where, you know, big tech and conservatism and uh, really liberty-minded ideas come into contact, I'm going to invite her back on because she's absolutely, absolutely awesome to talk to. And without further ado... Jess Myers, welcome to Land of Bourbon and Bad Decisions. Hey, thank you for having me. Super excited to talk about my favorite all-time topic. There's a lot to talk about, especially uh, tonight with recent news about 230 reform. All right, so I said I've had like a brief. Uh, speaking of 230, apparently Alexa is listening to our conversation and is trying to get involved. <laughs> But um, so briefly, what exactly is Section 230? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, my the way that I've explained 230 uh, has really evolved and, and changed uh, significantly depending on, I guess, the news cycle. And I've kind of landed on explaining Section 230 is not just, you know, it's it's it says that websites are, are liable for third-party content, but more that Section 230 is merely just uh, a procedural fast lane for the First Amendment. Um, so, you know, what it, what it does, and explaining this more from, you know, like kind of a, a legal positioning, um, Section 230 basically requires that the person who is, you know, saying the speech or who has, you know, um, put the speech out there is held responsible for it. And that's, that's how we, that's how we handle offline laws today. You know, the person who does something or does a harm is the one that's liable for it. Um, Section 230, like I said, it's just, it's, it's merely a, it's a, a procedural fast lane to get to kind of the inevitable decision that would be reached um, under a First Amendment defense. So what I mean by that is, you know, we'll take, for example, if I were to say something defamatory about you or, you know, one of the listeners um, uh, on Twitter, for example, um, you could sue me, but importantly, you can't go after Twitter. Um, and that's kind of where Section 230 comes in, is it allows Twitter, if you were to sue Twitter, they could kind of end the lawsuit at what we call a motion to dismiss phase, so it's ended super early. Um, but if Section 230 didn't exist, what would actually end up happening is, you know, the you, you'd go after you'd go after Twitter, you'd, you'd call them into court, you'd plead all of, you know, the regular def, uh, defamation elements, and then Twitter would likely have a First Amendment defense um, for carrying that content. 
you know, First Amendment defenses are uh, you know, those those lawsuits. They can uh, they can go on for years. They require a lot of resources. A lot of attorneys are brought in, um, depending on you know the facts that are pled. Maybe it goes to a jury, etc. Um, but at the end of the day, the likely result that would be reached is that Twitter has a First Amendment right to carry or not carry, uh, you know, specific types of, of speech or content um, that it chooses to carry. Uh, what Section 230 does is it just bypasses, it gets to that inevitable result, and it bypasses all of the, you know, uh, kind of ridiculous court proceedings um, and expenses that it takes to get from point A to point B. All right. And I think where a lot of uh, conservatives like me kind of really, they start having issues with Section 230 is not so much moderation and Moderation is an easy thing to understand. Twitter, Facebook, Parler, all of them, they give you a set of rules. Here is what we will, here's the things you cannot do. Here's the things you cannot say. And if I come out on Twitter and I go on, put out some racist screed, I fully expect to get swatted down by Jack. That's, you know, understandable. I think where a lot of people have problems, though, is like when um, New York Post uh, had the story about the Hunter Biden laptop. And they published or they put the link to that story on Twitter and then Twitter comes out and no, and they shut New York Post down. I think that's where a lot of people seem to have that issue. That's understandable. Um, and, you know, I'm going to just put it out there. I don't necessarily agree with the way that Twitter handled the New York Post story, you know, politics completely aside. Um, I don't know if that was the right content moderation um, moves on their part. I will push back on one thing, though. You know, the point that you had made about how content moderation, it's easy to understand. And I, I kind of thought that as well um, when I was just kind of coming into this space. And I think connecting it also to, you know, the laws that we understand today in, in the U.S. This is something that I, I didn't understand until I, I went to law school and I started kind of realizing, like, there's a little bit more to it. But, you know, when we say, like, you know, oh, well, this is defamation. Well, there's, you know, several elements to defamation. And then, you know, there's certain, uh, you know, different stages in which you plead certain, you know, different things about defamation. And there's different knowledge standards. And if you, you know, one knowledge standard means one thing in one jurisdiction, it means something else in another jurisdiction. There's a lot more to it than the rules that these services kind of put out and say, well, okay, no hate speech. Well, you know, what is what does hate speech really mean on Twitter versus what does it mean on Facebook? Maybe it means the same thing to some people. Maybe it means something else to a different person. So it's kind of it, content moderation is a little bit more advanced in that it, you're making decisions about um, online content that different people have different kind of feelings and thoughts about in general. And, and whatever decision that these services make, you know, some people are going to be happy with it. Some people aren't going to be happy with it. It's never going to be the right decision for everybody. And that's just, you know, kind of, kind of how it is. Um, all of that aside, though, when it comes to Section 230, again, even if we didn't have Section 230, Twitter's decision to not share the Hunter Biden or to, to I guess, you know, block the Hunter Biden post is completely protected under the First Amendment. And I think that's where people kind of have a disconnect is you're not upset about Section 230, this actually very boring procedural law. You might actually be mad about the First Amendment. Um, the, the And again, you know, it, if we didn't have 230, 
Twitter, maybe you take Twitter to court. I don't know what the what what would be kind of pled there. I don't know what the, the claim would be, but at the end of the day, the decision would be that Twitter has a First Amendment right to decide what content they want to have on their service or not have on their service. Uh, the same standard that we hold for newspapers and and for other public, you know, online or offline publishers. Right. And again, this is going back to a lot of stuff you hear, namely on the right. I don't necessarily hear so much coming from uh, left-wing media is that you know Twitter, Facebook, all the social media now acts as the public square, which I do understand these are still private-owned companies, and by libertarian leanings, hey, it's Jack's company. If Jack wants to run it that way, I can go somewhere else. But then that you know, the cognitive dissonance that's the hard part is when you're self-aware enough to realize there's cognitive dissonance there to go, well, the common good conservatism in me says if they're acting as the public square, why don't we treat them as such? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think there's some valid points there. I, I think mainly because there is, when we're talking about the public square, I think there's a huge difference between what we consider kind of an offline public square and an online space. Again, when we're thinking about, you know, the internet and it's, we're treating it as completely different and unique from, you know, the offline world. We're talking about, you know, not just you know, thousands of people that show up to a place and, and speak on, you know, public property, but we're talking about millions of users at a time with with millions of uh, and and billions of of content generated that have that you know has to have decisions made about it um you know from all over the place too not just from not just in the united states as well um so there's just there's kind of this again when we talk about content moderation and, and content moderation being so hard there's just this this extra element of difficulty um and and pinning down, you know, that the, all of that responsibility onto the service to be able to decide what types of speech should and shouldn't be allowed or what's, what's considered neutral, um, it would quite honestly be impossible. And we would have such a different experience. Like if we were to say like, let's treat Twitter like neutral public forum, for example, um, almost undoubtedly, every single person's tweet would have to be screened before it was put out there in the, it, just to make sure that there was some sort of neutral balance or, or between um, you know, all these different opposing views that you would see on the internet. So it's just that for reasons as to why we don't treat them as a public square, well, it's, it would be absolutely impossible. I don't even know what that would look like um, in an internet environment. Yeah, I, I think it would end up turning into really a lava like 4chan and 8chan looks like where, oh, God, that's as about as far as I can go on those because trolls are going to troll. And those are excellent venues for that because a lot of it, a lot of those uh, channels are set up overseas where they may not be subject to the same algorithms as, you know, services here in the states provide and you know i'm all about free speech again i if if bob wants to go on racist greed on twitter hey that's great we all know bob is a racist so let it let it go out there but at the same time i i do understand that you know as a provider stuff like that is discrediting to your service 
And so I, I get they want to kind of put a kibosh on stuff that's going to make Twitter look like a cesspool, like, you know, 4chan and 8chan and, you know, Reddit was for quite a while. Absolutely. And I mean, to, to kind of to kind of play on that as well, I said, like, oh, well, you're going to have to screen every single tweet. But the amount of resources that would be required to do that would be absurd. It would, um, it'd be like best. blockchain it really farms. Limit what the... Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, the alternative would to, would be to be truly neutral would be to allow all content, don't moderate anything. And as you mentioned, it would be an absolute cesspool on Twitter. It would it would it wouldn't be the experience that we're used to. However, I will say this, though, like, you know, in the discourse of what people are upset about and going back to the, the Hunter Biden post, um, I do think there is a place where services can start doing a lot better when it comes to the way that they do content moderation. And I'm not here to say like, oh, well, you know, every single decision that they make is is good. And, and you know, like this is this is exactly how the Internet should be. You know, I think Twitter actually I think they made a mistake when it came to the Hunter Biden um, uh, post. And I think that Internet services in general can do a lot better and, and can iterate and innovate on the way that they moderate their services and moderate speech. Um, that's an entirely different conversation, and it's a more interesting conversation than the Section 230 conversation because 230 peeling or or repealing it won't force those kind of innovative experiments and decisions that we are hoping services will will kind of make. Right, and yeah, you know, it's one of those you know you know free market, let it uh, fish out uh, better ideas. Um, are there any changes to 230 that you think could be made that would better allow for these uh, social media platforms to be able to do that? Just I, I'm a bit of an absolutist when it comes to Section 230. Um, I think the question should be first, uh, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And then is amending Section 230 going to solve that problem? And I haven't run into that yet. I mean, the example being FOSTA-SESTA for just to kind of step it back a bit where, you know, the, the goal in mind was let's curb sex trafficking. And so with a, you know, in 2018, this FOSTA-SESTA amendment was added to Section 230 as an, exception, as an exception. And what it actually resulted in was it made sex trafficking a lot worse. Um, and sex workers were the ones that suffered the most um, out of it. Because um, it, it pushed really, it mean, to it the shadows really... more. Right, exactly. And it also made it harder for law enforcement to actually find sex traffickers and then, you know, sex workers, instead of being able to use some of the legitimate sites that they were using to vet their clients, now are back on the streets. Um, it's, it so creates a dangerous environment. And at the end of the day, if you look at the, if we're looking at the result, if the goal was to curb sex trafficking, it actually did the exact opposite. So I think it's really important to think about, okay, well, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And is the problem that you're trying to solve, well, I want Twitter to host more conservative speech or, you know, or, or to, to not, you know, be, to be responsible for not posting the Hunter, to, for blocking the Hunter Biden story. Well, any amendment to Section 230 won't achieve that goal. And it's the same for liberals as well. You know, like the, the Democratic side, when they when they talk about Section 230, they talk about, well, um, it's coming more from a consumer protective approach. And so we want consumers to be safer online or we want children to be safer online. And again, it's if you're amending what amendment to Section 230 will cause content moderation teams to, you know, nerd harder or to get smarter. I mean, that there's such a disconnect there. There's, there's attacking a procedural law is not the way to innovate and to improve the internet. Right. And, and, and I fully understand that. And again, 
I've got a lot of cognitive dissonance on this, mostly because, you know, not born out of any animus towards Section 230 or, you know, social media. But I think a lot a lot of people, their animus to it comes from ignorance, frankly. That's that's as I've done more studying and learning about 230 and what it actually does, I think I've become a lot more neutral towards it to where, okay, I'm directing my anger at something that, you know, it looks like a problem, but really it's a bunch of other things. Right. And, you know, I think a better question or a more, you know, one that will, will result in more insightful kind of answers is not what can we do to 230 to improve the internet, but how can users start holding services more accountable for kind of the way that they moderate content in general? And so I think about this a lot, like, you know, for, for starters, uh, these services are free and the way that they make money is through advertisers. Advertisers don't want to put their brands next to content that is, you know, that users find distasteful and they don't want to put it on services that users, you know, don't, uh, don't want to use. So there, the users have a really strong voice in saying like, I'm not going to put up with, you know, Twitter's decision anymore. I'm going to move over to let's say parlor, or I'm going to go start my own service. Um, that voice is super important and it's, it's better spent actually, you know, criticizing and holding the services accountable than trying to, um, I guess, uh, uh, go after this, this law that, to be honest, the, the major big tech services, they've already, it's, it's, it's probably not going to result in, in, in much, uh, uh, I guess, chaos on their side in, in general. Really what it's going to do is it's going to, it's going to hurt the smaller guys. It's going to hurt the competitors and big tech is just going to kind of steamroll forward with whatever happens. Right. And, and that's, I think what a lot of people I think miss about repealing 230 is, you know, the the same thing I've said about when, you know, big tech getting getting their fingers involved with uh net neutrality. With net neutrality with big tech, uh Google was one of the big ones helping to write net neutrality policy. Google has the money, they have the resources, they have the attorneys to navigate the to navigate that system. Whereas I'm starting my own web service for whatever widgets I'm trying to do on the internet. And suddenly I don't have the money. I don't have the attorneys who are fluent in net neutrality to be able to help navigate that system. So I'm more open to, uh, to litigation and penalties from the government because I'm not meeting X, Y, Z standards. And it, it really, it becomes a, a barrier to entry. And same thing with Section 230. We bar Section 230, just scrap it. And I want to start my own uh, social media platform. I have one jerk on that platform who starts making threats or whatever, and then I get sued. I'm, I'm out a social media platform. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and that's, that's exactly it. And I kind of, I noted, you know, section 230, it's this, it's this awesome, you know, procedural fast lane to the first amendment um, for reaching inevitable, the decision that's inevitably going to be reached at the end anyways. Well, 
these smaller guys, the, the, the market entrants, they cannot afford to take their case through a full, you know, the uh, full length defamation trial, for example, and plead a First Amendment defense and be in court for years upon years and, and, and deal with discovery and eventually, you know, like you get to that end result, like they might win and they probably will win because they have they will have a strong First Amendment claim. Um, but they'll lose in the end because they'll likely go bankrupt um, or they'll just be forced to, to settle or, and, and, or exit the marketplace. And for some of these, um, you know, there, there's, there's even some proposals to say, well, oh, that's fine. Then let's make Section 230 um, only apply to big tech and, and not apply to, you know, or let's make, let's make uh, Section 230 only apply to the smaller guys and not allow it to apply to big tech. Well, then. Yeah, then, then your, you have the same problem. Outcome of yeah, you have the same problem that a lot of conservatives hate, especially like you go back to TARP and George Bush uh, with the bailouts at the uh, 2008 stock market crash. Now you have government coming in. They're picking who's going to be the winners. They're letting the people they don't like hang out to dry. And it, it's it's the same problem. It's just, you know, it's from the right versus uh, from the left or more progressive view of uh, government involvement in the markets. Right. And, and it just also, it, it makes, it makes big tech bigger because what that does is it creates an incentive for the smaller guys once they become bigger and they become within the threshold where they would quote unquote, lose section 230 immunity, they'd sell out. And who are they going to sell out to? Well, they're going to sell it to the guy who's got the Amazon money to buy him. Yeah. Right. Um, and, Absolutely. And, you said that there was some uh, a big Section 230 news going on today. Uh, Want to get in that because, like I said, I haven't read up on a lot of the 230 stuff as it's per playing out right now. Besides, you know, Josh Hawley, you know, putting the screws to Jack and Mark Zuckerberg in the Senate. Yeah, uh, I want to say about an hour ago, we just got news that Senator Graham is going to, or apparently has a draft bill uh, that would force Congress to come up with some sort of alternative to Section 230, or Section 230 would be repealed in 2023. It's, in my, in, in my opinion, just from reading it, and there is no, I haven't seen a copy of the draft bill, and uh, most of my colleagues haven't either. Um, I wonder if it's, kind of a PR move or, or, you know, kind of a last, last effort before the Biden administration comes in to do something about section 230. So I'm not, not that worried about it, but, you know, I think again, what a waste of taxpayer dollars we're paying for Senator Graham to have uh, essentially a temper tantrum. And it's incredibly, in a lot of ways, it's incredibly anti-American. It's, it's incredibly anti-free speech. Um, it's nonsensical, uh, and it's very clear that he has no idea what he's talking about or the law that he's talking about. Right, and it was like Donald Trump was saying, which, but I'll put this out there, I did vote for Donald Trump. Sucks that he lost, but there's a lot of things that he did that kind of irritated me. One of them was he wanted Section 230 repeal attached to the National Defense uh, Authorization Act, which we're taking funding our military and turning it into an omnibus spending bill and just attaching all sorts of little things here and there. And it's like, really? You've been upfront about a lot of stuff, but you're going to try to slip that one in the back door on us. 
Yeah, that was, I mean, if, if conservatives, especially Trump supporters should be mad about anything, it should be that it was incredible, again, incredibly anti-American holding the defense, holding our military and defense spending hostage over a law that um, I'll be honest, Donald Trump does not understand and does probably doesn't even. I know. think half um, of Congress doesn't, doesn't understand the damn law. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, he knows that it's it, it's been it's been touted as like a big tech um, gift uh, incorrectly, that is. And he thinks that this, you know, getting rid of Section 230 is really what's going to stick it to big tech. He thinks that big tech is the reason why, you know, he is, probably lost the election. Um, and so this is his big, like, you know, uh, move on out of there. But what he's really doing is he's, he's going to destroy the entire internet with him on the way out. Right. And I said, I've, I've at least developed enough. I've had enough online arguments with some really smart people about it. Um, uh, Shoshana Weissman, I've had some pretty heated Twitter conversations with her, John Ziegler, I've had huge blowouts with him over Section 230. And again, it's like a lot of Americans. It's not because I know what it says and it says this. It's because I was completely ignorant about what it actually means and the whole point of it. Yeah, uh, you know, and I will say I've noticed that and I, I hate to call it ignorance because it's. I think that the Section 230 community, the people who are kind of in my circles, um, I don't think we do a very good job about making that law accessible. I don't think internet services do a very good job about making um, their decision making and, and their you know processes and policies accessible for users to understand. And so when you've got your government that you know you, you're supposed to trust to, to hand down you know legitimate information. Um, calling out that section 230 is the reason why like you know for example your you, there's there's self-harm content on the internet there's this awful content on the internet or like you know when your content gets blocked I, I I actually find it totally reasonable that this is kind of this is where the 230 conversation has devolved it's what it's devolved into because it's it's in a, in a lot of ways it is a kind of complicated law to understand and our bases just don't do a very good job about making it accessible or understandable right and, and and sometimes there's some really dumb things like there's a cnn personality who i will not name uh he has demonstrated a lack of intellectual fortitude on twitter and i may have had a personal account that referred to him as a pansy and apparently calling people a pansy <laughs> on twitter is targeted harassment and so that account is in permanent suspension who knew but again some of yeah. it and some of it's algorithmic i know if i go and i type the n-word there's an algorithm looking for the n-word that's going to flag it for either either be automatically moderated out or it's going to pop up on somebody's desk hey he said this what do you think and and I understand there's stuff like that, but and like you said earlier, there's a lot of gray area where it might get flagged and then it still goes to a person's desk for review where they person might go, Oh, come on. This got flagged seriously. Let it go. I I I moderate a Facebook page for the or a Facebook group for my podcast. And every now and then there's stuff that pops up because 
somebody in the group didn't like what somebody else had to say. And they, so they flag it and I have to go look at it and I either have to go, okay, that's beyond the pale or eh, it's mildly offensive, but still funny. I'm going to let ride. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, absolutely. So you, you of all people, and that's really, that's really what it comes down to is if you've ever moderated a Facebook page or if you've ever moderated a chat room, like that's uh, take that, but scale it up to, you know, millions of users and then tons of content. That's, that's essentially what it comes down to. And you know, what works for your audience or your podcast, um, you're going to moderate differently than what Twitter's going to do. Twitter, right. Twitter has an entirely different audience that they cater to. They have advertisers that they cater to. So the decision's going to be different. I'm, I wonder if the comment that you made on Twitter, if you made it on a site like parlor, um, if that would be taken down or not, it's a different audience. Yeah. And I will say this. I do have a parlor account. I don't use it very much. And frankly, I don't like going on parlor because there's so many right wing people on parlor that it's a giant echo chamber. And it makes my, it makes my head hurt seeing all the, you know, Cheeto Jesus saves. So it's just like, Okay, I need to take a break. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go over to Miwi. Someone's going someone's gonna say something offensive and or someone's gonna say something that I'm gonna that I will take offense to and I, I can go slug it out. You know, I, I don't like being in a you know digital circle jerk just because I don't like what Twitter has to say. Yeah, and I mean that's kind of the hard part in navigating online communities in general is that you've got exactly what you just, you just kind of said, if you want to have, if these, if, if conservatives want to have a space where, you know, all of their, their stuff is shared and they're not subject to, you know, the rules or, or policies of some of these major services, um, you risk uh, creating what you just called an echo chamber. So, and, and balancing that is between, you know, what Twitter is versus what parlor is it's, it's really hard to find that balance and it's really hard to craft policies around creating that balance. So I haven't seen a service that can do it perfectly yet, but there's also room to innovate. Right. And, and that's where, you know, the, the free market part of me really kicks in because, you know, I think enough people are going to complain about power just, Oh my gosh, we get it free speech, but there's a lot of right wing and, they'll try to get some of their left-wing friends on there or, you know, it'll start to balance itself out. And same thing with Twitter. If, if Donald Trump were to, you know, January 20th, Joe Biden is, is uh, inaugurated, takes the oath and Donald Trump cancels his Twitter account, moves solely to Parler. I think there's a lot of Cheeto Jesus people who are going to follow him over to Parler and I think it'll be a huge, it'll create a vacuum inside of Twitter that Twitter's going to go, okay, what do we have to do to get these people back? And I think it will lead to innovation that will draw people back in. But then again, I, I'm not Jack. I don't, you know, I don't run a multi-billion dollar, you know, tech company. So maybe I'm just seeing it from, you know, 30,000 feet where I'm, and I'm seeing things that aren't actually there. No, I think you make a good, I think you make good points. Online communities have evolved, you know, since the nineties. And it also is a question too, as, as to, you know, who's running, who's running these services and who's making these decisions. You also have a lot of human bias as well that goes into this. You know, you, you had mentioned, oh, well, a lot of it is automated decision-making. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not super sure about how much of it is actually automated. Um, you know, I'm sure some things, the obvious cases are automated, but 
most of the time the cases that come up are not that obvious um, and it does require human review. And then you've got, like I said, human bias and it depends on who you're hiring for these teams. So, you know, where there can be innovation with the service, I think there can also be innovations with who you're, who these teams are kind of made up of. If, if you have more diverse voices, then you have more diverse content moderation decisions being made at the forefront. Right. And I think, and it's going to go to the, the last major point where, or point of contention, I should say, about, you know, tech and, you know, sent that line between censorship and moderation is I think one of the big complaints I hear uh, really is throttling of content, you know, where you have a, you have an influencer with, you know, a million subscribers and they put out content and then they go and they look at the, the statistics the data analysis on it and it was seen oh i have a million followers a hundred people saw the content and you know it and they say it's maybe not maybe it's uh seeing zebras where there's only horses but i mean i it's one of those weird things where like i said it's okay there's no reason why why are the people who want to see my content not seeing it yeah, I think you're referring to um, this this notion of shadow banning. It's it's hard to speak to that because I will say, like you know, I, I don't know um, I don't know what Twitter's practices and policies are. I don't know what you know Facebook's practices and policies are. So it's really hard to speak to um, you know some of those decisions that are being made. Um, I think I think there's a lot that goes into it as well um, when we're talking about engagement. Engagement with social media posts are kind of complicated. It really depends on who picks up posts, who retweets, who comments, um, you know, on Facebook, who likes, I guess on Twitter as well, who likes. Um, so there's kind of, you know, just some some unexplained gray area there as well. Um, but it's it's kind of, it's, it's difficult to speak to what's going on behind the scenes there um, because different services work differently and they have different types of teams and they have different ways of approaching content. I think there's better ways to approach it. Like, you know, instead of, I don't think shadow banning, if that's what these services are doing, I don't think it's the right way to approach content at all, but I do, I am in favor of, you know, if you've got content that you don't think should be, uh, you know, just out there in the public viral, like viral in the public, um, apply counter speech, apply, you know, do what Twitter's doing with the um, sort of the, the warning blurbs or whatever, allow, uh, provide more information so that users can see both the content that's, you know, upfront, but also they can see um, counter, counter views and, and counter opinions. That's what I think should have happened with the Hunter Biden story. Right. Um, there should have been, you know, if Twitter wants to put a blurb on it, that would have been good, but it at least preserves the content that was there originally as well. Right. And, and also something I have noticed you know, you know, completely anecdotal. I haven't dealt with a lot of other people to figure out if, if it's just something I've seen. Content and content creators that you interact with more. Um, I said, I, I said earlier before we got started, I'm a huge fan of Glenn Beck. If I go a while without clicking on any Glenn Beck stuff on Facebook, it just disappears. Yes, I'm following Glenn Beck. I should be getting updates, but because eh, I didn't, I haven't, I haven't, you know, clicked on the videos. I haven't clicked on the the articles that was shared by his uh, social media person. I stopped seeing Glenn Beck stuff until I actively start seeing it again. So I mean, I think that's where a lot of people who complain about shadow ban, 
banned. It's like, oh, I'm not seeing their stuff. They've been shadow banned. Well, when was the last time you clicked on one of their stories? I don't know, two weeks ago. Oh, there's the problem. You're you're not giving your everything runs off algorithms because you can't pay someone pay enough people to moderate and pay attention to what everyone's clicking a hundred twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for a billion people on Facebook. So it is mo it is, you know, monitored by algorithms. If you're not engaging in certain content, it's not going to keep giving you the content because yeah, why clog the timeline? Right. And keep in mind too, uh, we're also talking about eyeballs on advertisers, right? And so if it's it's not in these services interest to keep content from you that you would prefer to see, um, because that's what keeps you on the service in general. And at the end of the day, that's what keeps you viewing ads. And, and that's what keeps these services lights on. So I think again, like kind of going back to the point of it's not just about like, we don't understand the law that's in place. We don't understand the policies and practices of these services, but we also, we have this kind of misunderstanding of the internet as well and how, and just kind of the technological backend of, of sort of some sort of how these services work or how these algorithms work. And again, maybe this, this is where services can do better. This is where they can be a little bit more transparent about like, you know, why are you seeing this kind of content on your newsfeed? I think Facebook does offer some explanations if you dig into it. Um, but that's just another another place where services can kind of be more open with their users and explain like this is this is how it works. If you engage with more content, you're going to see that content. Right, and and there's been some really good stuff as far as come out as far as how you know Facebook is free. Here's why it's free. Um, Adam ruins everything on True TV did a great episode about why Facebook is free. Um, was it uh, The Social Dilemma, the, the documentary on Netflix? It's, my wife watched that, and she's like, I'm going to put my phone down. I'm just going to walk away because of because <laughs> it shook her. So, like, oh, my God. Yeah, and, and it's... Yeah, and I think... Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think at the end of the day, I mean, that's the kind of stuff where, again, it's it's an insight into how the technology works and how the internet works. And when you really like start to understand that, and then you look back at Section 230, which was kind of the topic of, of this conversation, you, you even more realize that there's nothing that Section 230 does and nothing that you can do to amend or repeal Section 230 that will change some of those kind of technological things and, and those business models that that are are kind of the way that these services are structured and built upon in the first place. All right. Well, this has been a very insightful conversation, Jess. Um, you've definitely taught me a hell of a lot more than I knew coming into the conversation. So Thank you for coming on the show. Um, if there's any other huge tech things that come up as far as tech and tech law, I would love to have you back on. I mean, I know 230 is your forte. I mean, you've got the Section 230 tattoo. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I would love to have you back on. You have been great. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, this was this was great. I love having these discussions. And I love that I, this is kind of the first discussion that I've had where it's it's, you know, we're talking about both the conservative and the liberal viewpoints a little bit. And I really like like, you know, I, I don't view Section 230 as as a partisan issue. And I think it's really important, like, 
to have these discussions about humans and their end users and how they're experiencing the internet and pull away from politics a little bit. So I really enjoyed this conversation as well. And I'm happy to chat more about, you know, 230 or, or tech law in general. All right, cool. I'll be glad to have you on. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. All right, so that's going to wrap it up. And I know I said on the last live episode that was going to be the last last episode for 2020. It's not that I lied. It's just that due to scheduling conflicts, um, me and Jess had to push this conversation back a little bit just to you know make time for her because you know law school and finals and all that. So again, thank you, Jess Myers, for coming on the show. Again, if you want to follow her on Twitter, you can find her at Jess underscore Myers, M-I-E-R-S. Um, again, um, I also have to say thank you to Built Bar. Built Bar has been absolutely awesome the last couple months helping out with this. Uh, if you go, go to Built Bar and check out their selections. Right now, they have the 12 Days of Built Bar. They have the... The candy cane brownie built bars. Oh my freaking God. Absolutely amazing. They're good for you. And oh my God, it's like the best candy bar I've ever had. It's a protein bar. So go to builtbar.com, check out the candy cane brownie built bars while they're still in stock. You can also check out the uh the chicken bone broth. It's amazingly delicious. Mixed with some, with uh, like 12 ounces of hot water. And it's a nice, tasty treat, especially in the wintertime now. It's starting to get cold and icky and a little extra protein in your diet. Kind of just great, absolutely great products there at Built Bar. So check it out. Use the promo code RELENTLESS. I know right now, uh, each day of their 12 days of Built Bar, they have different savings and this, that, and the other. But if you use promo code RELENTLESS, you um, most of those days you'll get extra savings on top of it. So BuiltBar.com, promo code RELENTLESS, check it out. And again, thank you all so much who have been listening for this year. It means more than you know to have developed uh, a listenership with you all. And I look forward to coming back after New Year's and hopefully be able to get some more interviews. And like I said, hopefully get Jess back on if any other big tech things pop up. Thank you so much. You all are the ones who make it worthwhile. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and as always, stay relentless. This is Relentless Dairy on Podbean.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.